0: This podcast is made possible by Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield, the whole health company. Welcome to Go Bronx Podcast, Episode 23. I'm Olga Luce. And I'm Angel. Today, in honor of Black History Month, we are going to talk about black history in the Bronx. The historic legacy of black people in the Bronx dates back as far as
1: pre-colonial times when the Dutch first conquered, then settled, New Amsterdam, now Manhattan Island. The black legacy, unfortunately, started in the New World as slaves from the different regions of Africa, primarily from Angola. Many were sold at the ports by the Dutch West India Company and became the city's very first workforce. These African slaves built New Amsterdam's buildings, both public and private. They dug out canals, like today's Canal Street in downtown New York City. They built the wall that kept invaders out of the settlement, now called Wall Street. And they laid down the settlement's very first underground water pipes, one of the first foundations that sparked the settlement's expansion. In short, enslaved black people were responsible for building the new world.
0: Yet, not everyone who was black or had dark complexion was a slave in the New World. The Dutch West and East India companies had interests all over the globe, and they hired people of various backgrounds who were willing to do the work on their behalf. One particular merchant who came to New Amsterdam in 1613 was a fellow named Jan, or Juan Rodriguez, who arrived on the ship John Tobias. Juan was of Portuguese and West African descent, and was born in what we now know today as the city of Santo Domingo, located in today's Dominican Republic. Juan was mulatto, meaning of mixed race, and depictions of him show a dark-skinned man of curly black hair. He learned the Lenape tongue and assisted in many trading transactions as a translator, although he was originally employed by early Dutch traders. Rodriguez was considered the very first immigrant merchant of African descent, to settle in New Amsterdam before the West India Company incorporated there in 1624. Today, you can find one of his tools at the New York Historical Society, and a street in Washington Heights, where a large Dominican population can be found today, is named in his honor.
1: While New Amsterdam steadily developed on the backs of African slaves, places like the Bronx remained to be uncharted territory for the Dutch. Yet by sixteen thirty nine, when Jonas Bronck arrived at Wanachquiwiak, or Wanatchqua, which is how the Wekoskeeks referred to the South Bronx at that time, African slaves were able to negotiate their freedom with the Dutch West India Company, that by sixteen forty four some were given conditional half freedoms, freedoms under then director Willem Kieft. Slaves manumitted under the 1644 Ordinance of the Council of New Netherland were freed after committing to paying a yearly fee, but their children had to remain enslaved to the company. Although a cruel compromise, slaves took this opportunity to buy and own small plots of land outside of the wall of New Amsterdam. There is no record of Bronck owning any African slaves, but he did have a group of indentured servants from various parts of Europe to help clear the land. This mode of barter was, and never will be, nowhere near the cruel institution of chattel slavery, as his indentured servants were able to work for a certain amount of time, usually seven years, before they enjoyed full freedom with no strings attached.
0: By the 1650s, New Amsterdam was a slave trading port, and these half-freedoms were put to a halt. When the English conquered New Amsterdam in 1664 and renamed it New York, slavery became even more brutal. The Duke of York, who would later become King James II, was a major shareholder in the Royal African Company. This firm held a monopoly on that continent's slave trade, and it also developed elaborate slave codes designed to control and restrict African lifestyle and culture. In the late 1650s, as the village of Westchester, now Westchester Square, was being encroached upon by English settlers from Connecticut, we begin to see recorded slave transactions amongst the settlers. In just a short time since the English takeover, Richard Morris and his wife Sarah Pole arrived in the colony in 1668 from the island of Barbados and purchased the former homestead of Jonas Bronck, calling it Bronx Land. With land still to be cultivated and clear, the Morrises brought along their slave workforce to complete the task. A year later, Thomas Pell, in whose honor we received the manor at Pelham, now Pelham Bay Park, Orchard Beach, and Split Rock Golf Course, granted in his will the freedom of one of his female slaves named Barbary. During the time, Native Americans too were being captured and enslaved to work alongside their African counterparts. Within two years, the Morris couple at Bronx Land bears a son and names him Lewis. The parents died shortly after. With a thriving estate in the English colony and an infant heir to it all, Colonel Lewis Morris, Richard's brother, arrives from Barbados to take care of his orphan nephew and administer the land. With him he had brought his own retinue of African slaves. Combining the number of slaves that were on the estate when he arrived, Colonel Lewis Morris became one of the Bronx's largest slave masters at the time. When he died in 1690, he was owner of almost 70 slaves. By this time, slaves
1: were living under tighter restrictions. They were no longer permitted to use guns for hunting or trade with Native Americans who, by the way, helped the slaves hide in the hills of the rural Bronx landscape from their pursuing masters. Their gatherings were dramatically limited, even for funerals. Slave runaways were the norm in the colonial Bronx years, and it was a growing problem for colonist farmers who frequently complained about their livestock being stolen or killed. We talked a little bit about this in episode 13. In his will, drawn up in October of 1700, Frederick Phillips, who was once one of the largest landowners in Westchester, which is roughly today from the Spite and Dival Creek to the Croton River, was a notorious slave trader. He bequeathed to his children and grandchildren the slaves that he helped import from places like Madagascar and other parts of Africa. In 1693, a slave named Antoine, who was perhaps from the Phillips estate, was granted his freedom. He, his wife Diana, and three children, Ben, Abraham, and Jacob, lived on a farm near King's Bridge, near today's Broadway and West 230th Street. The Phillips family married into the Van Cortlandt family, who also owned slaves. Today, just east of the Van Cortlandt House Museum, there is an abandoned slave burial plot that no longer has any markings of its historic significance. In episode 18, Bronx Cemeteries, Nick Dombrowski of the Kingsbridge Historical
0: Society talks about it in great detail. Olga, so many families in whom our streets and neighborhoods are named after were slaveholders. Such noted families like the Hunts, Leggets, Delanceys, Ferrises, and the Wards all owned African slaves. In fact, almost towards the end of Hunt's Point Avenue, you come upon a park with a gated cemetery in the middle. This park is called Drake Park. Named after an early poet of the borough, Drake and his ancestor Hunt family, along with some Leggets, are buried there. Well, As we also mentioned in Episode 18, some of the slaves to these families are buried in unmarked graves just outside of the cemetery plot. They were finally recognized a couple of years back when the Parks Department installed signs to acknowledge the graves and offers a bit of history about them.
1: By the turn of the 18th century, Native Americans were no longer counted among the slave population in the Bronx. Some had escaped into the nation's interior, while many more died of disease and the harshness of chattel slavery. By 1714, we cannot identify any Native Americans as slaves in colonial Bronx. Black people were the preferred stock to endure slavery, and the need to own more was quite evident for white landowners. Yet they were also growing in number, both enslaved and free. In 1712, because of harsh laws prohibiting blacks to accomplish basic goals like marrying amongst themselves, strict segregating edicts, and other unfair practices, a revolt erupted in New York City that put the fear in Bronx slave owners.
0: As the 1700s progressed, American colonies began to feel the direct effects of Britain's rule. Leading up to and after the French-Indian War, Great Britain began to introduce laws that tightened the economic squeeze on its American colonies. With pressure mounting, plantation life for slaves became harsher, and many in the colonial Bronx began to escape. Black people can be found in the muster rolls of the French-Indian and American Revolutionary Wars. Many fought alongside their masters to protect the property, while others harnessed the opportunity to retreat into freedom. When revolution began to simmer throughout the colonies, white colonists found themselves in grievance with the king because of their own rights being diminished while still holding on to their slaves. Seeing this dichotomy in plain view and not being allowed to fight alongside their fellow white colonists on the battlefield after 1775, blacks began to side with the British who offered freedom in exchange for their services to aid the crown. In 1781, we note a small garrison operated by free black British soldiers of Virginia at the summit of a hill which is now called St. George Crescent, just east of the Grand Concourse and Van Cortlandt Avenue East. The old Boston Post Road ran just at the bottom of the hill, so the Negro Fort, which was its name, was meant to keep continentals and militia from traversing the road.
1: There were some unsung black heroes during the Revolution whose efforts were credited to their white masters. Take, for example, the account of Charity Ferris. When the British Sir William Howe invaded Westchester, now Westchester Square, in October 1776, he used the Ferris Mansion, located at today's Country Club neighborhood, as a temporary headquarters. Although Charity did train one of her young black slaves to tend to the general and eavesdrops on his plans against the fighting Americans, The young black slave never got credit as he risked his life in doing so. Because of his efforts, Charity was able to obtain information and relay it back to General George Washington's troops stationed in White Plains. Till this day, we still
0: don't know the name of the young black hero. Bill Swan was a slave owned by the Hunt family who earned his legacy of being a career maritime pilot, which is someone who guides large ships in navigating through tumultuous waters. In 1780, during the height of the American Revolution, the HMS Hussar, purported to have been loaded with payments for British troops fighting in Westchester, apparently hit a large rock just south of today's Ward's Island, nicknamed Pot Rock. According to legend, the captain of the ship did not take heed to Swan's directives and warnings to steer clear of Hell's Gate to avoid hitting the rock. Instead, the ship took on water and struggled to sail north until it sank somewhere between Randall's Island and Port Morris. Bill Swan is buried at the Slave Cemetery in Hunts Point.
1: Well, Angel, there's, there's a lot to unpack here, so let's take a break. We'll be right back. The world has changed a lot in the last year, and more than ever, you need health insurance you can rely on. Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield is the whole health company, and that means they are dedicated to improving the health and well-being of everyone in the Bronx and throughout the New York service area. They've been supporting the health of Bronxites for 86 years, providing you access to high-quality, affordable care. To learn how you can make a whole health connection, go to empireblue.com. Sigourney Weaver here to tell you about the New York Botanical Garden. 250 acres, 1 million plants, and you. Now open in the Bronx. Plan your visit at nybg.org.
0: City Bike is expanding to the Bronx. Membership is only $179 annually. New Yorkers who live in NYCHA or receive SNAP benefits can take advantage of the discounted City Bike membership for only $5 a month. Visit citybikenyc.com pricing to get started. Although the words, all men are created equal, have been added to the preamble of a certain document, independence for black Americans from their slave masters was still an idea not all states were on board for. In New York, slavery was abolished in 1827, but black Americans still struggled in society where they had to compete with their new immigrant neighbors. Places in Manhattan and Brooklyn saw much tension between Blacks and Irish immigrants that sometimes led to civil unrest. Places of worship were targeted for arson. White marauding mobs searching for scapegoats attacked unsuspecting Black men and women. When the Civil War broke out, all these tensions came to an ugly climax when the draft riots of 1863 occurred.
1: While most of the rioting happened in Manhattan, some occurrences did happen in the Bronx. Telegraph offices and draft boards were attacked at Marasania and West Farms, and railroad ties were torn from the ground. After attacking West Farms, local rioters marched towards the town of Westchester. With a fair number of blacks living there, it was ripe for conflict. But the town was saved by its residents, especially with the efforts of abolitionist Brainerd Timothy Harrington. He was principal at his boarding school for boys at the time, and when the rioters approached... He dressed his pupils in military uniform, gave them rifles, and ordered them to shoot if any rioter stepped further. The town of Westchester was eventually spared. During this time, the colored orphans' asylum at Manhattan's 46th Street and 5th Avenue was burned to the ground. But thankfully, all 233 children escaped the inferno. In 1907, this institution was moved to Riverdale in the Bronx,
0: where it was later renamed the Riverdale Children's Association. As the Civil War raged on, many Blacks around the city joined the muster rolls. In 1862, Congress passed two acts allowing the enlistment of African Americans, but official enrollment occurred only after the Emancipation Proclamation was issued later that year. Rikers and Hearts Island in the Bronx served as military bases For New York State's three regiments of black soldiers. They were the 20th, the 26th, and 31st regiments. Over 4,000 black New Yorkers fought for the Union during the Civil War. They were among almost 200,000 who saw military service on the Union side. Unfortunately, because of strong racial sentiments, many black soldiers were not included in combat. Yet thousands served in almost all non-combat roles, such as carpenters, chaplains, cooks, guards, laborers, spies, steamboat pilots, and surgeons. Black women, although they couldn't serve as soldiers, served as nurses, spies, and scouts. Harriet Tubman was of great note during this time.
1: Speaking of Ms. Tubman... The Underground Railroad, a legacy in New York that is still being studied and preserved, had its extensive networks in the Bronx. Most of the sites are located along an older path of Boston Road. The site where today's St. Rita's Roman Catholic Shrine Church on College Avenue and East 146th Street in Mott Haven was once the estate of lawyer Charles Von Duren. His farm was a stop on the Underground Railroad since it sat right on what was then Boston Road, now 3rd Avenue. Nearby Mott Haven Reformed Church was also known to shelter runaway slaves. Uncle Daniel Mapes Temperance House and Farm, which was located on Boston Road and East 179th Street in West Farms, was also believed to have been a stop on the railroad. There are other historic sources that point to stops along the Bronx River, a body of
0: work that still needs to be examined. Some early black churches can also be found on Bronx maps of the era. On Unionport Road, near Benedict and Olmsted Avenues, some old Bronx maps showed an African church with its adjoining graveyard. These establishments date back to the late 1860s. The church was called the Centerville African Methodist Church and was part of the small village also called Centerville, where the intersection of Castle Hill and Westchester Avenues once formed its center. Mentioned in Episode 21, Bronx Lost Towns and Villages, Centerville may have been a free Black community drawing its parishioners from servants on the Morris Estate on Throgs Neck or the Deseriga Mansion where Ferry Point Park is located today. As mentioned before, the town of Westchester also had free African Americans living there since the 1820s. Today, a Chinese supermarket occupies the site.
1: After the Civil War more black people began to make history in what we now call the Bronx. At the historic Jerome Park Racetrack, now a reservoir of the same name located behind today's Lehman College, Abe Hawkins won the first race there before 20,000 fans, which included none other than General Ulysses S. Grant on September 25, 1866. Abe, who lived an extraordinary life, demonstrated that black horse jockeys were just as competitive in popular American pastimes as their white counterparts of that era. Yet, in a time of fierce segregation and mistreatment in the sports world, it paints a picture of how African Americans faced racial exclusions and discrimination in the Bronx during the mid-19th century.
0: Some familiar parks in the South Bronx held for many years nefarious names that once date back to colonial times. France Siegel Park, That beautiful squared oasis just south of today's county courthouse was once part of land nicknamed, and forgive us, but this was the actual name, Nigger Woods. This name stood until the turn of the 20th century before it was renamed after the German Civil War hero shortly after. Although the origins of this nickname is unknown, it does lend to the possibility that the Morris family's slave legacy is culprit as many of their slaves escaped into the woods north of the estate to hide out. Either way, it would definitely have been a sheer insult to African Americans living in the area at the time, including Cedar Jack Lyons, who operated in the 1890s a popular clam shack and cigar shop on the swampy shores of what's covered now by the Yankee Stadium area. He was one of the first successful black businessmen in Bronx history. Cedar Jack purchased a small fleet of rowboats and hired people living in Mott Haven and Melrose to dig clams in the Harlem River. The sections of Williamsbridge and Wakefield began to be known as middle-class African-American communities dating back as early as the mid-19th century. They purchased land as the area continued to improve with the advent of the Harlem Railroad line. Black men made their living as railroad workers and coach drivers for wealthy families in the North Bronx and Mount Vernon. They were also postal workers and became part of social and civil groups, as the Coachmen Society, organized in the 1890s, and another more recent group, the Benedicts, organized in the 1930s. In
1: 1898, the colored home and hospital for the sick, aged, and indigent on 65th Street ran out of room to meet the needs of its patients. With the consolidation of the five boroughs, the institution moved to the Bronx at 141st Street and Concord Avenue in the Port Morris section. Today, a police impound lot occupies this historic site, while new plans to build a jail there are afoot. Their outpatient facilities were added and the training school for colored nurses opened. This training school for nurses was the first formal nursing school in the country for black women. In 1902... It changed its name to Lincoln Hospital in honor of the great emancipator. The hospital moved to its new location where it sits today on 149th Street and Morris Avenue. Angel, let's take another break. And now for a little segment we like to call Yo Angel. Yo Olga. We've been recording most of our episodes out of the historic Huntington Free Library at Westchester Square.
0: What's the story about one of the Bronx's last private libraries in operation? The origins of the Huntington Free Library actually predate the founding of the library itself. Peter C. Van Shaikh, a prosperous tobacco merchant and local philanthropist, set aside funds from his estate to build a free library and reading room to be donated to the citizens of the village of Westchester. Frederick C. Withers, designer of Greenwich Village's Jefferson Market Courthouse, now a library, was engaged as architect, and the result was a Victorian masterpiece. The library, constructed between 1882 and 1883, contained three main rooms, the main reading room, a chess room, and an office. There was also a small room located within the turret, or a tower. Sadly, this beautiful building was ultimately refused by residents of Westchester because they did not want to pay For its upkeep, the red brick building in Westchester Square sat vacant until 1890 when another local benefactor, Collis P. Huntington, was somehow informed of the situation and decided to take over the project. Huntington, a Southern Pacific Railroad magnate, had a summer home in nearby Throgs Neck, in which he called the Homestead. Today, Preston High School still preserves his mansion as one of their administration buildings. There are some interesting relics at the library today. Rare books in American history and Native American heritage are preserved in the rear stacks room, which is where we record our sessions today, while an authentic Tiffany grandfather clock donated by a Civil War veteran still stands inside the chest room. A guestbook dating back to its early years still showed Westchester Free Library and Reading Room across the top as its heading. Many familiar names of local Bronx lore can be found amongst its signatures, but one particular signature from a 1902 visitor from Tuskegee, Alabama, still brings much conversation to the fold. Booker T. Washington's.
1: And now you know. I have learned that success is to be measured not so much by the position that one has reached in life as by the obstacles which he has overcome while trying to succeed. Angel, there's so much black history in the Bronx. It would have been nice if black people had more of a voice back in the colonial days. Perhaps we would have learned more of their accomplishments. I am pretty sure there are a boatload of achievements they were not credited for if it were not for blatant racism.
0: Of course, Olga. This is exactly why Black history still needs to be studied, so that we can continue to enjoy these historic legacies while praising them for their contributions to Bronx society. On the topic of contributions, music is one
1: of my favorite subjects in Black history. The Bronx has its fair share of this. By the ending of World War II, the Bronx saw many African-Americans migrating from the American South and from other parts of the city, especially Harlem. Places like Mott Haven and Marasenia quickly became a hotbed for them. In fact, by 1950, African-Americans have reached its highest population numbers for the first time in Bronx history, hitting 98,000. Marasenia became a musical paradise for jazz. In the 1940s and 50s, venues like Club 845 on Prospect Avenue and 161st Street saw legends like Thelonious Monk, Jimmy Owens, Dexter Gordon, Charlie Parker, and Sonny Rollins play. Later on in the 1960s, Sylvia's Blue Morocco, the Apollo Bar, and all other venues stretching north to Boston Road were frequented by notables such as Herbie Hancock, Elmo, and Bertha Hope, Henry Red Allen, Lou Donaldson, Tina Brooks, Oliver Beaner and singer Maxine Sullivan. Oh, you'll take the high road and I'll take the low road. I'll be in Scotland for you. But me and my true love will never meet again on the bonny, bonny banks of Loch Lomond. Doo wop artists from the Chords, the Chantals, the Cliquettes, the Mellows, and Arthur Cryer. All were from Morrisania as well.
0: Hip-hop music was born in the Bronx, and black people conceived it. Stemming from earlier rhythms and blues with a mixture of reggae and other forms, this music genre started in the early 1970s from the parks, house parties, and anywhere else music can be played for the masses. Hip-hop began as beatbox, then rap music, bringing to the radio waves the voice of the streets. Hip-hop pioneers such as DJ Cool Herc, whose house parties first cultivated the musical phenomena, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five offered a glimpse of life living in places like the Bronx with the song The Message. Unlike today, where hip-hop had taken on a much glamorous role with extravagance, early hip-hop spoke about the ills of the city during a time of financial crisis and urban decay. Of course,
1: we could not conclude our study of African Americans in the Bronx without mentioning those noted blacks who I consider permanent Bronxites. These are people who chose to be buried in the Bronx, and most of them are in Woodlawn Cemetery. They include diplomat and Nobel Peace Prize winner Ralph Bunch, cosmetics millionaire Madame C.J. Walker, her daughter, the patron of the Harlem Renaissance, A'Lelia Walker, the Harlem Renaissance poet County Cullen, the great vaudevillian Bert Williams, and such great names in jazz as the jab club hostess Bricktop, the developer of Narland's Jazz and discoverer of Louis Armstrong, Louis King Oliver, the composer of the St. Louis Blues, W.C. Handy, composer and bandleader Duke Ellington, trumpeter and bandleader Miles Davis, and in St. Raymond's Cemetery, jazz singer Billie Holiday.
0: Although the history of black people in the Bronx goes back over 300 years, it is only with the large increase of the black population in the 20th century that individual blacks have emerged to distinguish themselves. But the story of blacks in the Bronx is long and of historic significance. It is a story of overcoming adversity and of making the most of the advantages of the Bronx. This story is far from over. Based on the past, We can expect greater things in the future.
1: Amen to that, my friend. Amen to that. Hey, if you follow us on our social media, you'll see pictures of us wearing a slew of Bronx merch. These items are courtesy of Bronx designers like George Raphael, as well as DJ Sam Real and the store Bronx Native, located in Mott Haven. You can find out where to get your Bronx apparel in our show notes and on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages at GoBXPod. Thanks all of you for tuning in to our Bronx pod produced by the Bronx Tourism Council and made possible by Blue Cross Blue Shield, the Whole Health Company. Additional support is provided by NYC and Company. That's our show this week. Mucho thanks to the Huntington Free Library and Reading Room for serving as our makeshift recording studio today. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at GoBXPod. If you like us, tell your friends. And if they already like us, make some new friends and then tell them. For information about this episode and more, visit ilovethebronx.com. And while you're there, subscribe to our e-newsletter to get the latest and greatest news from and about the Bronx. As always,
0: I'm Olga Luce. And I'm Angel. Bronxfully yours.